Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Cabillas. Today's episode, which is our last episode of our first season, Woo! <laughs> Deals. Well, I was going to say we're 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 cheering over what we're going to talk about a very serious topic. Yes. So Don't, yeah, <laughs> try not to take that out of context. Here. There. Yeah. We're yeah. happy that it's our last episode. It's been quite a season. But yeah. We're ending with um, a heavy topic. Yes, and that topic is autism and suicidal ideation. Suicide is a very large-scale topic, which can include things like a person's experience with feeling suicidal and how to get help, the signs parents and teachers can look for when a child feels suicidal, and how loved ones deal with the loss of a person that has chosen to commit suicide. For the purpose of today's episode, we are focusing exclusively on the reasons why a person with autism would want to commit suicide rather than talking about supportive resources when a person with autism is feeling suicidal, or if a person with autism is grieving the loss of somebody that has committed suicide. All right. So before we get started, we have some disclaimers. All right. First of all, and most importantly, if you are feeling suicidal, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 988 or 1-800-273-8255. Second, although we have experience with mandatory reporting as former teachers, please do not reach out for us or to us for support on thoughts of suicide. We are not mental health experts on suicide, and you're better off seeking support from a trained crisis worker. Uh, third, Nicole will be sharing her personal stories and from her experience with suicidal thoughts, as well as people we know personally that have experienced suicidal ideation. We would like to give you a trigger warning based on the content that we are about to share in this episode. If you would like to learn more information about the correlation about autism and suicide in a less triggering way, please refer to our show notes. And then finally, we will be sharing some resources that are generally recommended to address suicidal ideation. These recommendations are not universally applicable. To seek specific support, please contact a therapist or a crisis worker. Again, we are not mental health professionals and therefore do not have professional experience on how to help somebody that is feeling suicidal. So let's start with the most common reasons why people with autism will contemplate suicide. This list is based on internet research discussion with my autistic friends that had suicidal thoughts and my own experience with suicidal thoughts. The, the first reason is deep shame about being neurodiverse in association with bullying, alienation, rejection, loneliness, and internalized ableism. And to recap, ableism is the discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities and or people who perceive themselves as being disabled. Then there is the shame in association with making a quote-unquote autistic mistake that results in the loss of a relationship or job. Anxiety and depression about the challenges of surviving in a neurotypical world, which is also called autistic burnout. Then there's extreme, unrelenting, distressing sensory and emotional overwhelm that is difficult to relieve. Feeling trapped in a stressful or threatening predicament with no option for escape. Entering a major life transition without the structure of predictability, familiarity, and routine such as the transition from high school to college or college into the workforce, and then the loss of a significant person that served as an emotional support or caregiving role. 
Additional diagnoses of mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia increase the risk that a person with autism has to commit suicide. And the challenges of autism and other intersectional identities such as race, gender identity, sexuality, socioeconomic status, et cetera, can also create increased mental health strain leading to suicidal ideation. All right. There are very few, there are a few important systemic components that reinforce the issues leading to suicidal ideation. One of the first ones is the medical model of disability versus the social model of disability. I feel like we talk about this a lot in this podcast because there's an important distinction, right? So the, under the medical model, um, the assumption is that the, the person needs to be fixed in some way to be uh, more accepting in a culture. So impairments or differences should be fixed in order for that person with the disability to function in a neurotypical, able-bodied society. The social model, however, um, addresses systemic barriers, derogatory attitudes, and social exclusions that will disable a person more than the conditions of their mind and body. So suicidal ideation can come from many external factors, such as peer relationships, authority figures, family members, therapists, teachers, cultural generational values, and media messages, all telling the person either overtly or covertly that the person with autism, that they are flawed creatures incapable of being accepted and thriving in the society unless they mask who they are. In this sense, people with autism begin to believe that they are the issue when the society around them has presented barriers for them to thrive in an equitable way. So it's super important to think about that because it's, like I said, it could be an overt thing that people are actually getting this message directly, or it could be a, a, um, a hidden kind of thing where, you know, over time you're getting this message that, well, I just don't fit in and, and how, you know, what do I need to do? And, and the message is, well, you just need to be more like us, right? On the other hand, if a person with autism feels that they are powerless to change the systemic and social issues of an autism acceptance, this can cause increased feelings of suicide. All right. And then last, many well-giving caregivers um, of people with autism may teach people to mask their autism to survive in society. Instead, there should be more conversations about recognizing ableism in the day-to-day world and teach a person with autism how to live in unmasked and anti-ableist fashion. One of my struggles with suicidal thoughts came from a deep-rooted shame about not being able to get my basic social-emotional needs met because of my autism. I took every human mistake I made as a reflection of my flawed being, no matter how hard I worked to fix that. Part of the suicidal thinking comes from working so hard to fit into neurotypical society, only to continuously experience alienation, bullying, and loss. What pulled me out of the darkness that I was the problem was taking racial equity training. By learning about systemic racism, I learned about systemic ableism. By learning about white privilege, I learned about neurotypical privilege. By learning about tokenism, stigma, stereotyping, and exceptionalism in association with race, I was able to understand it as it pertained to autism. Racial equity training taught me to recognize that a comment about my quote-unquote poor social skills was a stigma that didn't have a reflection of who I was. So instead of taking it personally, I adopted anti-ableist communication. That helped me reclaim my sense of power and overcome one aspect of my suicidal thinking. 
Right. The generational understanding of autism, we can, we can say on this show, has changed a lot in the last century. There is a continuously involving understanding of what autism is and how it can be supported across the entire lifespan. Though things are getting better, progress still needs to be made when it comes to neurodiverse-friendly mental health support and professional success. Some organizations are ready to hire autistic people, while others are concerned of the liability and stress of hiring a person with autism. Lastly, we as a society are still trying to figure out what it means to be equitable and inclusive to various groups of people. Those in the neurodiverse community are no exception. While this learning curve occurs, it makes it very challenging for people with autism to feel seen and validated for their needs and wants in life. The point that we're trying to make here is that there are a lot of broader cultural, social, and systemic factors that lead to a person feeling ashamed about being autistic. Although it can be a lot to unpack, it's important for autistic people to remember that they are not defective flaw or burden. We talked about unmasking autism a few episodes back, which is a great resource when dealing with the crippling shame of being autistic. We have a ton of great book recommendations from that episode that can support a person with autism to learn how to live as their authentic selves in a world that has created so much adversity for them. The process of unmasking autism can address the feelings of autistic burnout and feeling trapped in circumstances that are not conducive to a highly sensitive nervous system. People diagnosed with autism later in life may have greater context as why they struggle with life in a way that could lead to suicidal ideation. Although a diagnosis won't automatically protect a person from having suicidal thoughts, it will give context to their struggles and how to seek proper care. Parents may also get perspective for their child struggle from a neurodiverse lens. I've noticed that people with autism, uh, with autism diagnosed later in life will also struggle with the shame of being different and the burnout of trying to fit in a world not made for them, even if they don't know that it's because they are autistic. This is different from early diagnosed people who are aware of their differences because they could associate themselves with the autism label. There are some universal experiences of feeling alien, whether or not you know that you are autistic. Black and white thinking, catastrophizing, perfectionism, perseveration can all contribute to feeling trapped in a predicament that can feel threatening and scary. When a person feels trapped with no means of escape, suicide may feel like the only option. Yet a person in crisis may not be able to tap into that gray area of thinking that allows them to be aware of choice and autonomy to escape their harmful predicament. This is where a therapist can come in and help. Speaking to feeling trapped, that's exactly how most autistic people feel when they resort to suicidal thinking as a way to end continuous sensory overwhelm and emotional distress. In our episode about sensory processing disorder, sensory overwhelm can be chronically painful for your physical and mental health. If your positive and negative coping mechanisms don't end the sensory distress, then you might unconsciously resort to suicidal thinking as a way to end the distress. Some people who experience these types of suicidal thoughts aren't intent on killing themselves, but instead are so desperate to end their physiological suffering that they feel suicide is the only option. Lastly, let's talk about the loss of a caregiver or a loved one. This is a significant factor that causes anyone to feel suicidal. But when a person with autism depends on that loved one for, or caregiver to help them with their physical, emotional, executive, and professional functioning, that person can feel extreme anxiety or hopelessness. 
as a parent, what are your thoughts on this topic? I can't imagine um, what that would be like if you really had to depend on somebody for um, your day-to-day living and all of a sudden that person would be gone, right? So imagine everything that's um, that would impact you emotionally, add uh, the sense of loss, add the world turned upside down, add the change in routines, and all of these things would could impact you and um, the autistic person in a significant way. So I, I can't imagine what that would be like. And, and I think that, you know, regardless of where an autistic person is on the spectrum, I think every parent hopes that that adult independence skill is there because there comes a point right. where the parent is not gonna be there anymore. And mm-hmm. in an ideal world, the parent lives to old age And, you know, I've met people with autism in their 40s that live at home with their parents. And and I think that the whole discussion of like whether or not to live with your parent is a very complicated thing because some some families cannot financially afford to buy uh, an apartment or a house or help pay rent for an autistic person who works part time or can't work. So then they feel, well, it's just going to be easier for everybody if they live, you know, if we all live together. Another example is, um, you know, I I had a friend who said this pretty kind of clearly that if you're an autistic person living alone and you're in distress and your parent is always trying to drive out to check on you all the time, wouldn't it make more sense if the parent just lived with you? So then the parent is just immediately there versus right. like, you know, having to spend gas and spend time. Right. Um, and so then, not truly living independent life right there. Well, and then the other piece of it is like, you know, there are some elderly parents who just need help. And mm. so there's sort of an agreement that if the autistic adult struggles to live on their own, but is but is in a position to support that elderly parent, then it makes sense for them to all live together. So right, right. I don't, you know, I, I know that parents have a lot of fear of like, well, if I let my child live with me, am I enabling them? And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that there are so many individual reasons why a parent makes the decision for the person with autism to live with them. And it's not always because of the doubt that that person is incapable of living on their own. Um but that being said, there will come a point where they have to live on their own yes. because parents don't live forever. Right. And so um, and so I, I guess I do wonder if parents are having conversations with their adult children with mild or moderate autism about, you know, what support looks like. And I don't think any parent would feel good about the thought that you know, my child can't even fathom continuing to live if I'm not around. Um, And so I I guess I, I'm not in that position. I don't have that relationship with my parents. Um, But I do think that it's important for there to be transparency. And I think some parents don't want to have that conversation because maybe they don't want to admit their mortality, or they're afraid that having that conversation with their child with autism is going to create extreme distress. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's really complicated. But you know, I I remember when I was dealing with 
my mental health struggles and my suicidal thoughts. And I, and I had not that my suicidal thinking was related to my, my parents being gone, but I have thought about like, you know, if my parents die, how would that impact my mental health? And I've tried to assure my, my parents that their passing would be devastating, but it wouldn't cause me to give up on my life. Right. And, and I feel very committed to the support of my mental health that that wouldn't happen. And so I, I think it's vulnerable for me to talk about that. It's vulnerable for them to even consider that, oh, they have a child that feels suicidal. But I think that my parents needed some peace of mind that that wasn't going to be a factor towards my right. mental health. Right. Um, and, and I think it's important for, you know, there to be a raw, honest moment of like, are you going to be okay if I'm not around? And if you're not, what can we put in place to make sure you will be okay? Right. And, you know, again, if, if there is the luxury of living until you're elderly and you have your right mind and you don't have Alzheimer's, you know, how can you set a support system in place mm -hmm. through like a mental health organization? So then that person doesn't feel slapped into a whole set of support system that they're not familiar with, they're anxious about the transition, and they're grieving the loss of their parent. I mean, that can be way too much for a person with autism. So I think right. being able to at least have the transition of caregiving support set and having that transition mm -hmm. be slow can be mm -hmm. really helpful. Right. And even in that circumstance, I mean, we talk about um, stability and predictability and things like that. And even when you learn, lose somebody that's significant as a family member, um, it's nice for the person on the spectrum to have some kind of, okay, here's our plan B and we've talked about plan B and now plan B is going to go into action as yeah. opposed to we got nothing, right? Well, and because we never talked about it. Well, and I also think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a person in my circle who, um, she does like, I think it's financial counseling for families with, you know, severely disabled people um, and special needs of like, how can you afford, you know, long term care and having a care plan in place when the parent dies. And I remember her telling me that there's so much fear that parents carry of if I'm not around, is my child going to be OK? And I, I think what I've gathered from this woman is that the more that you set in place early in life, rather than waiting until you have a terminal illness or you're in your elderly age, I mean, then you're carrying that anxiety. Your child is carrying that anxiety. So I wonder if having that conversation earlier and even as young as like, you know, when your child graduates from high school and, right. you know, the parent is in their 50s, let's say, mm -hmm. um, you know, that there's a plan in place so everybody feels secure, that there's no coming out of left field. And and I think it's also important to have those conversations because it, it, we don't live in an ideal world where everybody lives until their 80s or 90s. Right. You know, people can die very suddenly mm -hmm. and... And even though, you know, there is going to be grief, there is going to be shock. What you don't want is to have the caregiving situation be this sudden 
you know, oh my God, I don't know what's going to do. And God forbid that the person with autism has to be the one to figure it out by themselves. Right. You know? Yeah. So, um, just to transition a bit and you talked about this a little bit. So as an autistic adult, do you feel scared about losing, losing your loved ones in relation to suicide? Um, so as I said earlier, I've experienced suicidal thoughts, but not immediately in association with the prospect of losing a loved one. But I have met a lot of autistic adults who feel this way. Um, everyone needs support in life. And that includes people with autism. While there is certainly grief about the loss of a support person, you know, as I said before, prepare the person with autism for the transition of a new person coming in. Um, and I remember, you know, there's a person in my life who who told me that, you know, one of the the fears of that parent dying is it's the fear that if a new caregiver comes into the picture, that person will never be as good as my parent. That person will never unconditionally love me and understand me as my parent does. And right. and I think autistic people are very aware that when there's a caregiver, there's a lot of trust building. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, um, you know, building a relationship from the ground up, which, you know, we take for granted when we have a parent because that relationship has already been there since we were born. Right. And people with autism really struggle with trust. And so, um, and and I also think that, you know, there's this rigidity, which, you know, I think it's a survival mechanism of, I want things to be a certain way because I want it to feel as if my parent never died, but it's, but there, it is going to be different. And that's going to create a lot of distress for the person with autism. Um, and so it is going to be hard. Um, but I do believe that a different caregiver is better than no caregiver. Right. Um, and I think that that's really important to bring up with the person with autism. Um, and I, and again, I think that's also why it's important that if the parent has this foresight of, you know, death coming around the corner or, you know, their time being up, um, that they get a system in place so that, you know, the, that their, the rapport building can happen between all three parties. And, you know, and so they're, the person with autism can feel like they have a little bit of support from the parent and they're, you know, and the parents norming like, oh, this is a person you can trust. And so then when the parent dies, the caregiver already has built rapport and trust with that person with autism. So it's not this like, you know, oh, I'm sad and I have to get used to a new person. Right. So if a person with autism is scared about losing a parent, then parents should talk to the person about autism, about what that transition should look like, as we talked about earlier, um, and, and really specifying what steps should be taken Um, and you know, the more structure routine and order that you create for both the parent and the person with autism, the more sense of security there is. Um, and, and I do think like what helps as well is I know when, when I was in a state of crisis, I was like, where do I even go for help? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that part of that 
aspect of routine structure and order is, you know, have a mental health team, have a list of crisis workers in your local area or a hotline. Um, and also, you know, do some research on some inpatient clinics. I think what, what has helped me to deal with my, uh, you know, intrusive suicidal thoughts is knowing if I'm feeling this way, this is who I go to. Or, um, you know, I, I remember, and I'll, I'll talk about this in more detail later on in the podcast, but I was in an inpatient clinic, um, and, and there was a lot of fear about that because I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea, uh, what was going to happen to my rights or how I was going to be treated. And not, that's not to say like, oh, I'm going to walk in and get the lay of the land before I go in. But I think that it's important to have a list of resources of crisis intervention and to kind of have a sense that those environments are safe. So when I, when I went into my first inpatient clinic, I felt terrified because I, I had no idea what was going to happen, how they were going to treat me. And I had a fantastic experience at the inpatient clinic I went to. And so coming out of that, I realized, oh, if I'm in this bad position again, I have full faith that this place is going to be so good for me. And, and, and I think that it, it reduces my not necessarily reduces the suicidal thinking, but I have a, a crisis care plan in place that I feel good about, that my husband feels good about. And I think that, you know, whether or not my parents are alive, they feel good that I'm self-advocating in a way that helps me out. So I think to be able to kind of get those resources set up and, you know, tell that person with autism, you may need these resources, you may not, but it's good, again, to have those resources there so that when the person with autism is in distress, they're not having to do research right. and Which figure it out. Which they can't do or, anyway if you're in distress. Yeah. Well, and then the other piece of it, too, is, you know, you don't want somebody who is feeling suicidal or panicking to be driving. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, you know, and that's another aspect of the crisis care plan is, you know... If the parents are not around, is there a sibling that's going to show up and and mm -hmm. take that person to the inpatient clinic? Is there a friend? Is there a family friend? You know, get all of those things in place, even yeah. if the person with autism is like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. You just never know. And right. it's just going to give everybody peace of mind that something is in place and it's not this like we're shooting in the dark to right, figure right. out, you know, what we're going to do. Um, and, you know, I can't stress this enough, and, I, and I'm sure every parent is aware of this. Adults with autism that, you know, have mild to moderate needs, they need to be prepared to take care of themselves or even be prepared to take care of their own parents. Mm -hmm. And parents should try their best not to enable their adult child to be capable of taking care of themselves when they are not around. Um, have a greater net of support people, including family, friends, and caregivers. So this will prevent the person with autism from feeling abandoned on a ship with no captain. I do want to add something to that. Um, so there's a, a, a person with autism in my life that I'm very close to. And 
we're we're very close friends and we also have a mutual friend. And so I had a conversation with him about this topic in preparation for the podcast and and he had brought up, you know, the the feelings about, you know, if my parent isn't around, I just don't know if I want to be alive. And so as a mandatory reporter and as a friend, I was like, I don't know how to respond to this. And I think that the topic of suicide is tricky because there's also like medically assisted suicide. Um, you know, my mom has very directly, explicitly told my family that if she had all, if she got an Alzheimer's diagnosis, she would commit suicide because, you know, my family, her parents, uh, my grandparents both died of Alzheimer's. And there was a lot of years, like 19 years total of my mom caring for my, my grandparents. And so she knows the quality of life she would have if she got Alzheimer's. She knows the suffering it would create for my dad, me and my brother. And she was like, I don't think I want to put that on you guys. And so the more I thought about it, the more I was like, okay, well, she has free will. It's her life. She's coming from a place of wisdom, of understanding, you know, what the quality of life is, especially if she knows that Alzheimer's is essentially terminal. Um, and we talked about, you know, the medical process of suicide, you know, through um, medical supervision. And so I think in having that conversation, I sort of realized like, there are times when suicide is the right thing for somebody's quality of life. And, and I, and I find myself in a tricky position as a support person to both family and friends of like, do I step in and support them or do I respect their wishes and let them be? And so I called our, our mutual friend of this person with autism in my life. And I said, I don't know how to process this information and I don't know what to do about it because this person's parent is in her elderly age. And so um, I think that we as friends needed to have a plan knowing that, okay, at some point, you know, this important caregiver is going to die. And while we don't want to be a, in a position of being, you know, full-time caregivers. And our friend doesn't want us to be in that position either. I think it was important for us to talk about how do we support this person um, if, if we get a call that says, you know, my, my parent is dying or, or dead, or I'm feeling suicidal. You know, how do we as very, very good friends intervene? Um, and so I, I think that I don't think it's my job as a friend to say, well, I'm going to do everything in my power to prevent you from feeling suicidal. Again, as, especially because I I was a manda mandatory reporter as a teacher and also, you know, I'm getting my master's in counseling. So, like, I have all of this moral conflict of, right, like, right. it's my job to intervene when I hear that somebody is suicidal um, but how do I do that with a friend and especially a friend who is just very like, this is what I'm going to do. Right. And so, and so again, I, I think it's making sure that I understand what my role is as a friend, 
not as a therapist, not as a mandatory reporter. Although I do think, I do think it's good to have those mandatory reporting skills, you know, because um, as, as you and I both know as teachers, there's a certain form of communication that you need when you're aware that a student is suicidal. And, and I think it's good for friends to have that. So I think the moral of the story that I, I'm trying to address is if you have a friend that not in a state of distress says, if this happens, this is making me think I might kill myself, you know, don't necessarily report it unless there's like a serious crisis at hand. But, you know, have a transparent conversation, like if you have that really deep friendship and and to not come from a place of fear, but to just say, I care so much about you as my friend. And of course, like as a friend, I don't want you to kill yourself. What can I do to support you? And right. and is that, you know, and and friends might need to step in and support finding resources financial resources, mental health resources, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that person may struggle with requesting time off from work. And so, again, I, I just think the more, the more transparent communication there is that's not driven by fear, I think the more empowered everybody is. Because then if the person with autism is feeling suicidal and, and they feel that the only person that they can call is their best friend, they understand, okay, my friend can hold space for this, for this crisis moment. My friend is also empowered on how to intervene. And, and I think if you don't have that plan, the friend is going to shut down. They might call the police. Um, Calling the police is a very tricky thing because police don't always have training on how to support people with autism. And there have been incidents where police have shot and killed people with autism that were suicidal, that were in meltdowns. Um, and so I, I think, again, you know, you, you don't want to make decisions to save somebody's life from a place of fear. And you don't want to, you know, the friend doesn't want to be in a position of like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Um, being, you know, being fearful and making significant decisions to reach out to certain people um, on the basis of fear. So if you have a plan, everybody knows, OK, these are the steps I need to take to keep this person safe and um, and to know, like, I'm going to be here. And, and I think another aspect of it that's also important is most of my friends with autism that I have, I've never seen them have a meltdown. So if I'm in a position where I need to go to my friend's house to care for them when they're in distress and there's a threat of suicide, you know, how am I supposed to support them if they have a meltdown? And so I, again, I, I just think it's good that you have those conversations when you're calm. And I also think it's important for the person with autism to recognize, you know, what your relationship with that person is, because you don't want to call a coworker or a casual acquaintance and put that burden on them. Right. It, the, if you're going to reach out to friends as a support, it really has to be your closest, dearest friends 
Um, and I would also argue, you know, have that exact same conversation about what to do and how exactly to support that person with siblings and with significant others. You yeah. know, again, it, it, it's about not per putting the sole burden on the parent that everybody feels mm -hmm. empowered to know what to do. And then the autistic person knows there's a wider network of support than just my parents. Right. Um, speaking of parents, um, so my parents and husband have been a major source of emotional support for me. Um, they are the ones that ground me when I have significant anxiety. Uh, Co-regulation has been a very, very big part of my mental health management. It's scary to think about losing them when I depend on them as a form of self-regulation. Um, and so again, it, it's it's this ability to teach yourself how to self-regulate. And it's also important, you know, to know all of the people that you can seek support from. And, and probably to kind of have a tier list and also to be very clear about how each person plays a role in support. Um, my biggest issue is that I treat everybody like a therapist and that has been very hard on my parents, my husband, some of my friends. And I've kind of had to learn the hard way that like some people just don't have the emotional bandwidth to sit with the announcement that somebody is feeling suicidal and they have no idea what to do. Or they don't have the the answers of how do I, how do I support this person that is dealing with severe anxiety or depression, and that's where you know a therapist is going to be your biggest intervention as well as you know community groups and crisis centers. But again, it it doesn't mean that friends can't be there for you, but it's about getting very clear and very direct of how that friend is going to support you. Because you don't want to burn that friend out with, you know, the person with autism always being in crisis. You know, and, and I think that it's important for those neurotypical support members to have boundaries of mm -hmm. like, I'm happy to help you this way, but that's about as far as I can go. And, you know, I, I can't go beyond this or that. And so then that way there isn't going to be resentment or alienation. So... I, I can't stress this enough, and I, I say it over and over, just have as many transparent conversations as possible. Um, and to not, you know, divulge all of your feelings about suicide and why you have them, but just to say, if I have these suicidal thoughts, what is going to be my care plan and who am I going to rely on? Right. It's important for adults with autism to recognize that their basic needs of support so just because a caregiver is gone doesn't mean that a, an adult with autism should shoulder the burden of having everything figured out. Um, so again, make sure that you have a plan to get those resources in place when your loved ones aren't there anymore. Um, parents can also help a person with autism set up those resources. Um, do I feel scared of losing the most important people in my life that keep me upright in an overstimulating world? Yes. And I think everybody feels that way. You know, if I died, that would be so hard on my parents and my husband who also use me as a form of support and regulation. Um, 
Now, that being said, do I believe in my capacity to be resourceful and resilient to seek out new forms of support? Yes. And I think ultimately that is the goal of being an independent adult. It's it's not about having everything taken care of on your own terms, but it's about mm-hmm. understanding that your network of support exceeds way beyond your nuclear family. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. All right. Now that you said that you've had experience with suicidal thoughts, can you share that with us? Yeah. So I started experiencing suicidal thoughts and I, and I would call it intrusive suicidal thoughts in my twenties and thirties. I felt like they came out of nowhere. I was never suicidal as a kid or teenager. I also had a lot of great resources and routines to manage my anxiety and overcome some of my autistic struggles. Um, I never felt like I actually wanted to end my life. And that's why I feel like the suicidal thoughts were invasive. And and that's also why the thoughts were really scary because it's like, I felt like my desire to live was incongruent with how I was feeling in my head. Um, it wasn't something that I came to the conclusion to, nor was it something that I desired or planned for but they were always in the back of my mind as an impulse when things got stressful. And I I do think it's important to bring up, um, a therapist had told me that there's three stages of suicidality. So the first part is suicidal thoughts. And then the second part is suicidal planning. And then the third part is suicidal action. And so my, you know, my therapist was trying to explain these steps to me as well as my mom. And she said, the planning stage is where it gets really concerning. And of course, not everybody knows, you know, or sees the planning stage because most people who feel suicidal maybe don't feel comfortable reaching out or the suicidality is, is a very sudden, strong feeling that you act on in the moment. Um, but I, I think she told me that, you know, Everybody on and off experiences suicidal thinking. Um, it's it's whether or not you act on it that's the issue, or how you manage the suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. or or you start reflecting on why why those thoughts are there. So what we had became aware of is I'm in the suicidal thought stage, but I'm not moving to planning because I didn't want to end my life, and I'm not in the action stage. And so what we were trying to figure out is, okay, well, why are these thoughts coming up? And what is Nicole doing to stop those thoughts? And why are they continually occurring despite her, you know, doing all of the right things to take care of herself? Um, So one aspect of my suicidality had to do with the shame of feeling different. And I struggled with this in many layers. Um, so in addition to being autistic, I'm also very empathic. Um, I'm very energy sensitive. I can sense spiritual energies and deceased people very strongly. Um, there in the new age community, there's this whole discussion about indigo children and crystal children, and this idea that neurodivergent kids are highly evolved, spiritually sensitive people. And I'm very into the new age culture. And so there was a lot of confusion about my identity 
um, and whether or not I could be autistic as well as, you know, empathic and energy sensitive. And that created a lot of existential anxiety. And it also made me feel like if I wasn't already alienated for being autistic, I was even more alienated for having these sort of existential spiritual wonderings about past lives and, you know, what happens when people die and being able to sense the spiritual energy of other people. Um, and that was really difficult to feel like even the people in my support system don't get me. And, and it made me feel like I didn't have a voice and that, um, that there wasn't a quality of life where I could be open with all aspects of myself. Um, and yeah, so, and, and, and the other thing too is like, when you are a very spiritually sensitive person, you sort of li live between two types of existence. You have the metaphysical reality and the physical reality. And that can be very overstimulating to the nervous system. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I felt like there was a lot of very intense feelings of alienation and abandonment that that was sort of my interpretation of, of how I connected with people. Um, and that, that was really, really tough for me. Um, and I talked about this earlier as well as in previous episodes. I also struggled with shame spirals related to making social mistakes. Um, I have dealt with social perfectionism my entire life. It's something that I'm still working to overcome. And that social perfectionism has resulted from the stigma and stereotype of my social emotional intelligence as an autistic person. And this tended to get escalated if I made a mistake that ended up hurting another person, such as making an unintentional comment that was stigmatic on the basis right. of race or LGBTQ plus identity. Um, I'm very unconsciously hard on myself for my social mistakes. And I would say the biggest part of that is having, as somebody who has experienced marginalization and the deep shame-based pain and, and of course, um, suicidal anxiety of experiencing that pain, I felt a great amount of shame, guilt, anger, grief that I could possibly inflict that harm on others. Mm. Um, I also felt suicidal if I was stuck in long periods of chronically painful mm -hmm. or distressing sensory overwhelm. Um, that is the biggest reason I would say that I've experienced the most intrusive suicidal thoughts. Yeah, and I can imagine that that would be a common factor in, in many people on the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. Just for those chronically painful and um, the empowering and, and this uh, stressful sensory overwhelm that can, that can impact your life in such a significant way. Yeah, I mean, I would say like the social fears of and shame of alienation, um, you know, that, that certainly played a role, but I think that the, the times when my suicidality was highest was when I was chronically dysregulated. And yeah. so my family therapist told my mom, Nicole's not suicidal. She's extremely dysregulated 
And this is what her brain does when she's at a place where she doesn't have any more resources to cope. And so then the conversation became about, well, what do we need to do to resource Nicole as well as what are some big life changes we need to make so that Nicole isn't stuck in that state of dysregulation? Right. Which is the perfect transition. So how did you cope with these suicidal thoughts, especially since you didn't want to kill yourself? Yeah. Um, so at some points in my life, meditation has been one of the most powerful ways that I've combated suicidal thoughts. So because of my social anxiety and some of my sensory struggles, I've been practicing yoga and meditation since I was 16. And I, I wouldn't call myself a meditation expert or master but I've meditated long enough that when I sit in a meditation pose, even if I'm in distress, my body knows exactly what to do. Um, so when I sit in lotus pose, I know that, well, there, there are two really important things that happen. Um, in meditation, you know, there, there's this myth that you can't think and that if you think you're not meditating, the the true goal of meditating is allowing your thoughts to show up but not latching yourself onto them and not letting them spiral and the metaphor is like thoughts are like clouds passing in the sky mm. you see them but you let them go about their way and so i remember when i would meditate and i'd have those thoughts i'd tell myself it's okay to have the thought it's not okay to act on the thought and so the, this sort of non-attachment, unconditional acceptance of my suicidal thinking um, helped me to sort of be very objective and non-responsive to those thoughts. And then the other piece of it, too, is when you meditate for a very long time and you sit in lotus pose, and, and I've had um, times when I've meditated up to an hour, two hours. So my body knows how to regulate itself when it's sitting still. And so what I've taught myself to do, and I don't use meditation exclusively to deal with my suicidal thoughts, but what I tell myself is the moment you sit in this pose, you are not leaving until those suicidal thoughts are gone. And because I'm used to sitting in meditation for up to an hour to two hours, I'm comfortable writing it out. Mm -hmm. And also when you meditate, um, like I've gotten a lot better about like using my body as an anchor um, for your focus. And so when you meditate, you start to, you start to be very observant of what your body sensations are. And so rather than like, oh my God, I'm feeling suicidal and I want to cut myself or I want to do this thing that's going to end my life, you go, hmm, I noticed that. Or, or it might go down to, I noticed there's heat in my body. And you just sit with that feeling and then you just observe it until it goes away. Or you go, hmm, what part of my body is actually feeling regulated and calm? So... This is what's worked for me. And, and I think that my biggest fear when I'm in that suicidal thought or suicidal crisis is the fear that I'm going to do something impulsive. And, you know, when I've talked to my parents, my therapist, my husband, 
And, you know, one of the questions comes up is, if you were to kill yourself, how would you do it? And my thinking is, if you get a gun, if you take pills, those are very intentional decisions that were, you know, require steps, right? So if I buy a gun, I have to get into my car, I have right. to drive, I have to go to the gun shop, you know, I, I don't sure. own guns, I don't live in a gun owning house, so I would have to go buy a gun. Right. And, or, you know, the same thing. It's like, I don't know if you're taking fentanyl, like you're going to overdose. Like there are steps you have to take to acquire the thing. You have to communicate with the person. And my thinking is if I'm so impulsive, like at some point in that step process, I'm going to realize, oh, I'm doing this. Ooh, is this what I want? And, you know, I feel like the same thing applies to like hanging myself, um, many other ways. It's like there, there's, there's steps. Mm -hmm. What really scares me is I live in a high rise apartment. My fear is I'm going to open my balcony and I'm going to jump. That to me is a very, like, there are no interventions in between. And so I've responded to that a few ways. And, and I think the biggest one is getting into a, a physical position of stillness where my body through meditation and mindfulness is aware this decision is not an option right. or uh, meditation allows you to go, hmm, I notice I want to jump off my balcony. Let me sit with this for a bit. And so it, the, I think what's at least helped me is about how do I slow everything down? I see. Um, and I think that that's where things like walking meditation, you know, so, so another example would be like if I wanted to cut myself with a knife and I'm racing over to the drawer and I open the knife. Right. Well, instead of running, well, what if I walk? Or if instead of walking, what if I did a walking meditation where every step is very slow? So when I slow down my process or I sit in, in lotus pose and meditate, all of a sudden my rational brain is able to comprehend how I'm feeling and, and goes, uh, I don't want to do that. Right. And, and then being able to kind of be observant and reflective, it allows a little bit of time for my body to kind of process like, oh, this is an impulse. Because mm -hmm. I'm in a lot of pain, but this isn't what I want to do. Right. Um, but there have been times when meditation has not been an option because even when I sit in stillness, it still ramps up. Yeah. And so the second thing that I've done, and, I, and I've been very transparent with my husband about this, is, you know, make sure the knives are nowhere near where I am or put some barricade or some barrier right where the outside balcony door is. And, you know, could I in distress rip everything away and jump off? Sure. But I think what it's really about is having an affirmation in place to go, this is not an option. Right. And I think because of my mindfulness and because I don't want to kill myself to be able to recognize, oh, there's a barrier here. This is not what I want. This is not what my husband wants. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm able to redirect myself somewhere else. Or if I have that urge that I want to jump off my balcony, 
I lock myself in the bathroom or I lock myself in the bedroom and I don't leave until that, that feeling goes away because it's not even about whether or not I'm actually going to do it. It's about, I don't want to see the balcony and get tempted or, or make the thoughts race even more, Hmm. you know? So, so it's about, it's about, um, cocooning if you Mm -hmm. will. Um, so that, you know, or swaddling, if you will, could be another way to just kind of, just to kind of sit with how you feel. And then if it gets worse, that's when you go, okay, um, I need to talk to my husband or I need to call a crisis, a crisis center. So I, I, and, and this, again, this is what works for me. I'm not saying this is what works for everybody, but I think it's about, you know, having your people that you live with know what to do mm-hmm. and making sure that that person who's feeling suicidal doesn't have immediate access to things uh, that can yes. hurt them, hurt others, or uh, cause them to make the decision. And luckily, uh, when I have experienced those feelings, I've never been alone. Um but that's why it's also really important to have those transparent conversations. And and those suicidal thoughts have come up enough, and especially after going to an inpatient clinic where I feel the need to tell my family, if this happens again, this is your role. This is what I need you to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And mm-hmm. if none of those things work, these are the next steps. Okay. Um, and it's hard. You know, yeah. I think it's hard for my my family to admit that I struggle that way, but I would much rather talk about it openly and have a plan than have my family or my husband be totally blindsided if I Mm -hmm. killed myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, and, and I don't know, I, I think I'm just such an open book. And, and then the other piece of it too, is like, not that I was ever a school counselor, but as a teacher, you know, you're always thinking about, well, what can I do to support students? Or you have a student yes. that does kill themselves and how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And I've watched, you know, news reports of like, you know, parents of children that have killed themselves. And they're just like, we had no idea that this person was struggling and we wish we could have done something about it. And so I think between all of that, as well as the mandatory reporting, like the biggest intervention mindset that I have for myself is, if these are the steps I would take as a mandatory reporter to help my students, why wouldn't I take those steps to help myself? Um, and I just, you know, I've I've learned for better or worse, I don't want to keep my mental health a secret. And um, and and again, as as hard and painful as it is for my family to carry the burden of, okay, she's feeling suicidal. What do I do? Talk about it. Have a plan. Um, you know, have a therapist in the picture that can contact people, you know, if something happens. Or, you know, these are the things that need to happen for me to go to an inpatient clinic. You know, having structure is really the biggest thing. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say is that um suicidal distress can manifest as emotional distress such as anxiety or depression, or physical pain. In my case, I would experience a burning chest pain, um, a burning chest, pain in the back of my neck, 
and um, this nervous system jangling that's really similar to hitting your funny bone. And so I, I do remember that um, when there were points when I was pretty seriously, very, very strong intrusive suicidal thoughts, and I was in a place where I, you know, I felt like, okay, the thoughts aren't really there anymore. They're not commanding my mind. I'm feeling grounded that I'm not going to make that decision. Right after that, that's when the physical pain started happening. And and the suicidal thoughts and the physical pain of the, the distress are all signs that you need help and something yep. in your external environment needs to change. And I remember that when I was having all of those physical sensations of pain and I knew that it was coming from my mental health, I was like, okay, if I was experiencing all of these sensations and it didn't have to do with anxiety, I would probably go to the hospital. And that was when I decided to go to an inpatient clinic because I just sort of knew that whatever my body was trying to communicate to me it was not something that I could solve by myself, um, nor was it something that could wait until my therapist could help me with it. Um, yeah, so I think that like having a really good relationship with your mind and body and being aware of your limits is when you start to realize you need to drop everything and seek help. And unfortunately, you don't always realize it the first time you have those feelings. I think it's when you deal with those feelings repetitively um, is when you start to realize like, oh, I'm hitting my edge and this is what I need to do. All right. Let's talk about resources that helped you overcome those feelings. Okay. Um, so there is a lot of criticism that mental health centers aren't always equipped to support people with autism. Uh, for me, I felt like I got a lot of fantastic support. Um, so I have gone to the Colorado Walk-In Crisis Center on multiple occasions. Um, and, and as I said before, I was admitted into an inpatient mental health clinic. To, to say that this the experience of being in this clinic was probably one of the best moments of my life as an understatement. And, and, I, and it's weird to say that because it's like, I think some people feel like being in an inpatient clinic is such a, a restricting, challenging, sometimes abusive experience or, or a very misunderstanding experience, especially if you're neurodivergent. But I felt like the people that helped me were so passionate about what they did and I was never alone. Um, and, and, you know, I, I was a social butterfly in the inpatient mental health clinic. And so I was there for about four days and the max amount of time you could be there was six days. And I was in a voluntary hold, which basically means that if you voluntarily admit yourself into the clinic, you can leave whenever you want. Yeah. Um, versus involuntary, which is where you are being admitted against your will and the staff determines when you're ready to leave. I see. Um, and the the voluntary patients were not in the same ward right. as the involuntary patients. Mm -hmm. And so again, like I, I felt like 
the environment was very calm. I felt like it was very homey. Um, they had decent food. Uh, I did feel very accommodated for my dietary needs. Um, I saw a psychiatrist, a therapist, and a caseworker every day. And then the thing that I didn't expect at all is I made two really good friends there. Mm. And, um, and I, and while I was there, you know, and, and I'm thinking like, oh, I'm a teacher and I want to be a counselor for people with autism. So I'm going to take this as an opportunity right. to like learn about mental health so I can be a yeah. better support person for people that are in distress. And I felt so enlightened by those conversations. And mm. I also felt like the friends I made, you know, we were able to talk about suicide, anxiety, and depression in a way that didn't feel taboo. Right. In where, an open way. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, if I in the past had heard, you know, that somebody was suicidal, I'd be freaked out. But right. in an inpatient clinic, if somebody talks about, you know, oh, I'm here because I thought about killing myself, it was very like objective. And I felt mm. very accepting of their story. And I didn't mm. realize I had that capability. Um, mm. And so I don't know, like my husband came to pick me up and I was just on cloud nine wow. and he did not expect this. And he goes, yeah, well, definitely. why are you so happy? And I said, this was literally the best decision of my life. Mm. Um, and not to say that like, oh, if I go back again, I'm going to make friends. But right. uh, I think just the the staff was awesome. Hmm. And I felt so cared for in the way that I know that I would have cared for my students and my own future clients. And it just made me feel so grateful that I was cared for that deeply by people who are that passionate about what they do. Yeah. Um, and so I think that going to an inpatient clinic is a very subjective thing. And, you know, somebody who goes to the clinic that I went to might not have the same experience as me, which is sure. why I'm not going to universally recommend it. But right. I, but what I do want to say is you never know what your experience is going to be if you do decide to go to those inpatient mental health clinics. And for me, um, because it was such a fantastic experience, it made me feel very resilient in knowing if I'm back in that position again, I know exactly where to go. I know how I'm going to be cared for. Um, and then if I needed more support than a week, um, there are people there that can kind of coach me, me through it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I just remember, you know, I think because there is a lot of stigma about inpatient mental health clinics, you know, I had so much fear about what it was going to be like. And if I had just, if I didn't allow myself to go in there, I, I wouldn't have had access to the amazing quality of care that I got. Um, and then there were staff there who had also been in inpatient mental health clinics and also staff there who have worked with a lot of people with autism. And I think they created a lot of um, validating support of like, yeah, this is scary because yeah. I, I went through it too, but I got a lot of value out of it. Mm. So I think it's something to consider. 
Um, other than that, somatic therapy helped a lot. I've talked about somatic therapy a lot on this podcast. I It has been life-changing to the point where now I'm getting certified to be a somatic therapist. Um, through that, I was able to teach my body to seek other resources for self-regulation instead of just defaulting to suicide as the last result, resort. And I was able to heal a lot of shame-based internalized ableism. And I think a big thing about somatic therapy is when you have suicidal distress, everything feels instant and fast mm. and intense, and it's very hard to get yourself out of it. And somatic therapy is a really good way for you to have better communication with your body and seek to understand why those that that your body thinks that is what it needs to do to calm down yeah, or to seek help. Um, all right. And then other things, um, you know, as I talked about before, racial equity training helped me develop social skills and societal awareness that helped me recognize ableist behavior from other people and stand up for myself, which ultimately I would say equated to two really important skills. One is self-advocacy and the other is setting boundaries. And I think because I have this understanding of ableism and how it operates interpersonally and systemically, I'm able to realize that I'm not going to let any of those things hijack my mental health. And so whether or not that person is open to me saying, hey, what you're doing is ableist, I'm able to have boundaries with myself to say, what they're saying is not okay. And right. I'm not going to let that lead me to feel suicidal. Hmm. And then the last thing I'll say is uh, medication helped a lot. I grew up in a holistic homeopathic family and medication was a last resort. Right. I had tried all sorts of holistic supplements to manage my anxiety. I, you know, had a bunch of different mental health routines uh, such as yoga, Reiki, I exercise, journal, making art. And my therapist told me that I was a workaholic of just managing my mental health because literally yes. if I wasn't working my job, all of my free time was dedicated to activities to manage my mental health. Mm. So when the topic of medication came up, it was the idea of can something take care of you yes. so you don't have to work so hard to take care of yourself and mm -hmm. ultimately create burnout and powerlessness. And and ultimately it was also cheaper because all of my medication was covered by insurance and none of my holistic supplements were covered. And so what I'm currently taking is Zoloft and Gabapentin, which is a, it's like a nerve numbing agent. And it it's made a huge difference for my sensory regulation. And I also take propranolol, um, which I only take if I have a panic attack. And basically what the propranolol does is uh, when you're having severe anxiety, all of the blood races to your heart and it goes out of your head. And so the propranolol sort of takes, it slows down the heart enough so that the blood can go back to your head. Um, and so, yeah, so medication has been a huge game changer. And I will also add this really blew me away. Uh, as part of my holistic supplement regime, I was taking CBD. Some people prefer CBD over medication. I was open to it. 
I made sure that the CBD that I was taking did not have THC in it. Well, come to find out that the very expensive CBD that I was taking had traces of THC in it. I don't know how much. It must have been a really small amount. But what they found out at the inpatient clinic, because I had to do a urine sample, and then afterwards the psychiatrist that worked there had a meeting with me, and she said, your urine had a ton of THC in it. And the THC was escalating my anxiety, even though the CBD was giving me a temporary calm. Mm. And so what would happen is when I would take the CBD, I would have maybe an hour of calm. And then all of a sudden my anxiety would ramp up. So then what Mm. do I do? Take more CBD and then it would ramp up. And so I was really upset to hear that that was occurring. Now, all that being said, I do have friends with autism who uh, do smoke a lot of marijuana, who do take CBD products. um, And I have asked them, like, how does THC affect their mental health? And they're like, I need CBD and marijuana to even reach any sort of baseline of calm. Interesting. the whole debate about, you know, CBD and THC and how it supports anxiety, I I think what I've taken away from it is everybody, every physical body responds differently right. to those things. So for me, that was not a solution for managing my mental health. But for other people, that's what they need. Yeah. And some people need a medical marijuana card for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what advice do you have for parents and significant others of people with autism when that person with autism experiences suicidal ideation? Even though it's scary, be brave and hold space for that person to share their feelings. Take immediate action to help them get help. Don't shove it under the rug or discredit their feelings. Take every disclosure of suicidal feelings seriously. And I've wondered, and I don't know if how you feel about this or if you agree with it, but as teachers, you know, we have to get so much training on uh, any sort of physical or mental health crisis. Like for example, if somebody's choking, we know how to do chest compressions. And so I think that there was a part of me that has wondered, is it good for me to probably know those skills Um so that I can save my child's life. And and so it, it does make me wonder, maybe it would be good for every parent and probably every spouse to just take some education about suicide intervention, to just know what to say, what to do, how to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like one of the biggest tools we had as teachers is ask twice. You yeah. know, are you feeling suicidal? If they say no, ask again. And for some reason, when you ask twice, they'll say yes. If they are. Yeah. And so I, I, if they are, yes. Um, and, and so I think that if, if parents know how to respond, um, because I do think one of the reasons that people don't disclose is they're afraid they're going to get judged or they're afraid that they're, that there's going to be so much fear and distress and I'm going to call the police or I'm going to call this hotline. And I think that the most important thing is to be calm. Um, And it's very similar to how teachers intervene. Um, You know, when we hear about it, 
we say, okay, thank you for sharing. Um, you know, I'm going to take you to this person and we have to be very calm. We Mm -hmm. cannot pry. We, you know, we can't be like, well, why are you suicidal and what's your plan? That's not our role. Our role is to get that student to the people that are going to ask the right questions. So Mm -hmm. I think parents could act similarly. And I think, you know, as some parents hear this, they might go, well, my child isn't suicidal. Just do it anyway, because my suicidal thoughts completely caught my parents off guard. Mm. And, you know, when you make the assumption like, oh, well, my kid wasn't suicidal in their teen years. So maybe they'll be fine in their adulthood. Right. You don't know that. So just, you know, get the training, get the information. So then that way, you know, and, and again, it's like, it's like knowing CPR, the likelihood that they're going to choke, who knows? But if they do, you're not sitting there panicking, looking at people going, hey, hopefully somebody knows CPR to save my kid. You know what to do. You know how to intervene. And you also know how to ask for help. And on that note, you know, have a safety plan. And, you know, as I've as I've talked about a lot in this podcast, make sure that there are steps in place. So that everybody is prepared and calm and knows exactly what to do. And also, if it happens once, don't ever assume, oh, it's never going to happen again. Just have a safety plan in place. Parents should take classes on signs of suicidal thoughts in children. As we talked about before, ask twice if your child is feeling suicidal. The more prepared they are to take action, the better support they are to their child. This is especially important because the person with autism might struggle to vocalize their feelings of suicide, either because they don't trust that they will be heard, they're not ready to openly admit they're suicidal to a loved one, or they might not be able to identify the physical distress as suicidal feelings. And it's it's not uncommon that when somebody experiences sadness, they don't know how to label it as sadness. So that can be a really, really big barrier about being able to catch, oh, this person is feeling suicidal or to be able to express it. So research everything you can about autism, mental health and masking. You might see connections to that person's struggles before the person with autism does. Seek out therapy and support if a suicide attempt leads to an autism diagnosis, which I know people where that's happened. Um, where they're in so much distress and then there's an evaluation at the inpatient Mm. clinic and come to find out that that person had undiagnosed autism. So just because you didn't see the signs of autism early on doesn't mean that you were a bad parent. Empower yourself with information to help your child moving forward. Care for yourself in addition to caring for the other person. When it comes to significant others, mental health support is important. Don't be afraid to support your partner when it comes to their mental health. That said, make sure you know when you're, what your boundaries are with it. Tell that to your partner when they are calm. Have a safety plan in place. Make sure that the loved one is seeking out support on their own so you are not assigned as their personal therapist. That's very important when addressing an autistic person's perseveration. I'm guilty of that with my mm-hmm. husband. Autistic people need to recognize that their significant other is not their therapist 
and they can get burned out trying to support them. It's okay to struggle while also seeking professional help. And lastly, pay attention to how much that person is going on social media. Many parents of autistic people that I've talked to said that they have confiscated phones and computers because their child was watching harmful videos about suicidal ideation on YouTube and TikTok. So as a specific example, there was an individual with autism, uh, 18 years old, that was on TikTok watching videos of, here's how you can disguise how you, you know, if you have cut yourself and there's right. a wound, how you can disguise it so people don't see it. Right. And I don't know that particular individual. I, I talked with her mom. Her mom was horrified yeah. to, to see that. And so, you know, you just never know what people are looking for and what people post. So I would say in general, it's good for anybody that is suicidal to take a break from social media. What you also don't want to do is have that person post anything. Um, you know, we autistics often don't have filters. And mm -hmm. yeah, you you don't want to share like highly personal stuff like that on social media. Um in the moment of distress, like for me to go on a podcast to talk about my suicidal ideation or make art is coming from a place of education, not from a yeah. place of I'm struggling, I need help. Right. So how has your experience with suicidal thoughts impacted your work as a teacher and future therapist? When I was in a better headspace, I felt gratitude for that journey because it made me feel more empathy towards my students especially my neurodiverse students going through similar struggles. I felt like it made me more attentive as a mandatory reporter. I wasn't as scared to hear a student talk about their suicidal thoughts and self-harming as I felt before going through that experience. And I felt like I was better capable of holding a safe space for them, even if they didn't know that I went through the same thing. Yeah. Having been helped by so many passionate mental health workers made me feel passionate and committed to my work of helping others. And my personal experiences with suicidal thoughts is somewhat universal with the struggles of being autistic. There aren't a lot of support resources for adults. Every struggle I go through gives me context of what it means to live an autistic life and seek tools to help me thrive in an ableist world. One of my goals in my future therapy practice is to use somatic therapy to regulate a client's highly sensitive nervous system and provide some educational resources on how ableism impacts mental health. And the last thing I'll say too is, you know, to have friends that I made in that inpatient clinic and, and one of them I'm still in touch with, I think that it's made me so grateful to hold space and, and to say, wow, you really struggle. And I, and I love you and I care for you. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that the topics of mental health struggles are so taboo and, and people don't want anybody to know that you struggle. Right. And, and then when you're on the receiving end of it, and especially when you don't struggle with mental health things yourself, it's overwhelming. It's scary. Mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of in this position of like, well, what do I do? Or how do I get out of talking to this person about this subject. And I think what I have learned, and more importantly, since I, I'm going in the direction of counseling, 
is I really, I deeply appreciate every story that people tell me about their mental health struggles, how they overcome it, or just being real and just saying, yeah. hey, I'm going through a tough time. So I feel like my struggles have made me a significantly better friend. I think my friends' mental health struggles have made them better friends to me. Um, and, and I think that all of those stories have made me a better advocate, a better mandatory reporter. Um, and, and I also think like when I watched my students struggle, teenagers are so bewildered by mental health distress, unless they are somebody who has a lifetime up to that point of dealing with anxiety and depression. But, you know, especially puberty plays a really big role in mental health distress and, and hormone changes. And so I feel like to be able to hold that safe space, to be kind, to say, some part of me understands how hard this is for you. They feel heard. And more importantly, I think the biggest takeaway that I've had uh, from my experience is I never put academics before mental health. Right. And if I have students that I see are really struggling deeply, I tell them, I want you to pass because failing a class is not going to help your mental health. Right. But when I see a, a student struggle, and they struggle in a way that I've lived, mm -hmm. I'm able to just say, you know what? Today, school is not a priority. And, yeah. and I get it. And I have never been the type of teacher that felt like my projects, you know, oh, well, you just need to get a hold of yourself because what I'm teaching is so important to you. And even if it's a kid who loves art, the distress is so all consuming or maybe right, they want to sure. make art, but they don't want to work on the project and they don't want to be around mm -hmm. their peers. And so to have a teacher that just says, you know, today, maybe you need to go take a chill pill, you know, go walk the hallway, go see a counselor, sure. you know, go to this empty classroom and decompress. And then to check in and say, how are you doing? Right. Those students feel very seen. And even if they're really struggling academically because of their mental health, I can't tell you how many students I've had that even if they got a D in my class, I'll get a, an email that says, thank you for not giving up on me. And even though I struggled and didn't do well, I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to make yeah. you proud. Yeah. And so I, I think that kindness, that ability to just be gentle and acknowledge the mental health issue in the room and to be able to say, Hey, it's okay. Right. Like we're here for you. I don't see you any differently. We're mm -hmm. going to get you through this. It teaches them to accept themselves and yes. it really lights a fire under their butt to be really resilient. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your advice for other people with autism that feel suicidal, be they teens or adults? Um, some of the ways that we struggle with our mental health, are heavily influenced on the medical model of disability versus the social model of disability, as we talked about earlier. So give yourself some TLC as you go through your recovery process. Though it may feel like your struggles are unique to you, there are so many people with autism that go through the same thing that you do. You are not alone, and you certainly don't have to feel like you are living in isolation, 
of a community that can help uplift you. And if you don't have access to that community, buy books. Um, one of the books I would highly recommend is Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price. He does a very good job of talking about holistically how masking impacts various groups of people in the autism community and how it impacts mental health. So when people with autism are able to speak about their mental health or the mental health of other autistic people they serve, it can be really validating. And it also helps you to see the big picture of societal problematic pieces that you can address if you are passionate about advocacy. In whatever way you feel comfortable, share your story with a trusted audience. When we talk about these experiences, we help others and ultimately help paint a better picture of understanding about the autistic experience. That will shape the way that autistic people support each other and how neurotypical professionals in education and mental health can help us too. And I will tell you, you know, at times having been a teacher, I guess like there is this debate of like how much personal information do you share with your students and I, especially when it comes to suicide, like how much do you want to share? Right. I remember I had a student with autism and this was a student that I loved so dearly. And I remember when I was having a bad day, I was like, this is the student I look forward to seeing that I know is going to make my day better. And I was having a really bad day, had that thought. All the student, all of a sudden the student walks in to my classroom during my planning period with a giant group of friends and said, I'm about to be shipped away to an inpatient clinic. And this is the last time I'm going to see you. And, and the student was going into a, an out-of-state inpatient clinic. And I remember feeling a lot of different emotions. I remember feeling sad that I was never, you know, I, I enjoyed this student so much. And I was so sad, maybe selfishly, that I was never going to get to see them again. But on the other hand, I was so happy that the student was seeking help. They're getting help. Um, yeah. And the student, honestly, when when the student was sharing this with me, they were happy. They mm. weren't sad. They weren't angry right. or mopey. It was like this big celebration. And, you know, the student really, you know, obviously the students with a bunch of friends and the student was walking around and talking to all the teachers they loved about, you know, hey, this is what's happening. And I remember in that moment, wishing I could have told that student, I went to an inpatient clinic. Yeah. I was also suicidal. And I don't know exactly what th that would have done right. other than to say, I was in your shoes and it's going to be okay. Yeah. Because I think some teenagers are terrified when they go into those inpatient clinics in another state for a long period of time. So what power would that have to teenagers if you had a, a an adult that you loved and trusted say, hey, you know, I I have experienced suicidal ideation. I also went to an inpatient clinic and I'm doing so great. Yeah. And I just have faith you're going to do great too. And because we have that mutual experience, I'm going to send you love and support from a faraway place and know that you're going to be okay. Yeah. What, what power or impact would that have? But I think that we're so afraid of the liability of, 
if we share that information, are parents going to get upset? Is the school going to intervene? And I think that's why I really appreciate sharing my story on this podcast, because Mm -hmm. there is a possibility that maybe maybe that student will hear my story. Um, Or maybe, you know, maybe that story will reach way more people than I ever could have reached if I was a teacher only working Mm -hmm. with teenagers. Um, You know, going back to what we talked about over and over and over, seek out help. There are so many resources around that will support you. Seeking help will always be better than ending your life. Yes. And don't turn your loved ones into your therapist. Not only will you burn them out, but they also won't exactly know what to do. Seek out professional help and don't talk about your mental health and past suicidal thoughts to anyone in your professional life, which I've been guilty of. I'm very lucky that it didn't impact my job security, but moving forward, I was like, maybe I shouldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So Brett, as a parent of an autistic child, how would you approach this situation if you thought that your child was contemplating suicide? Well, just like you were talking about, right? Get counseling and supports right away. Let them know that you're there to support them. And, and sometimes just sharing this idea, right, of, of suicide, sharing that idea with you as a parent is a huge step on the road to recovery. Because up until that point, if they haven't shared that idea with anyone, it's, this, it's a burden. It's a secret right? Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows this. I'm alone. Once they take that step to say, you know, I'm, I'm not in a good place. I'm com- contemplating suicide. I need help. Once they do that, the shift of that burden of the secret is gone. And now they can get somebody to help them, right? So that burden of how do I fix this, which they don't know, they don't know how to fix it. They can get help from other people who they um, feel love and support from. To get that help. Yeah. Do you feel like as a mandatory reporter and you have what up to 30 years of experience being a high school teacher, right? Yeah. I mean, so, it's 20. Yeah. Well, it's close, sure. close to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel like in moments when you supported a child in mental health distress or had to do mandatory reporting, did did that create any sort of thoughts of maybe I need to talk to my child about this? Not uh, about yeah. the student, but like. But that in general. Yeah, like like the thinking of, wow, I had to intervene to care for my student and bringing that concern to your own children. Yeah, no, that, that really didn't enter my mind because I didn't see, you know, Joshua's struggles were not the ones that I could perceive that were um, suicidal, it was it was managing meltdowns, right? So the, those manifested themselves in different ways. Um, so I never got the impression that, you know, Josh was ever going to hurt himself, right? Mm-hmm. Never, never in a million years, you know, I, I, I can f- feel and I can be empathetic with my son and my child about what they're going through. And never in my mind did it come to, okay, this is going to lead to suicidal thoughts. Yeah. It was always it was always in the moment. This is a meltdown kind of thing. This is he needs to um, learn how to self-regulate those kinds of things. Yeah. And then making sure that they're not self-harming through Correct. cutting 
or yes. burning and instead that, that, of the classic autistic self-harming behavior. Right, right. If it if it manifested that self in, into different ways that we see, you know, as teachers, which was the most common one was cutting, you know, then it, that's a different situation. Right now, let's talk to a therapist. Let's get to the root cause of what that's all about um, to help my child. Yeah. You know, so it made me think about this story. So when I was a sophomore in college, so I would say like my suicidal thinking probably started junior, senior year. And so this was the year prior. And I dated a guy in high who, school. Oh, senior year of college. Uh, sorry, okay. sophomore year of college. So okay, I was gotcha. about 20 years old. Okay. And I was dating a guy who, I guess without going into a ton of detail, I didn't feel physically safe around. And he was not on the spectrum. Um, it was just like signs of like, if there's conflict in the relationship, I'm concerned he might resort to physical or verbal abuse. And so I knew like, all right, I, I need to end this like sooner rather than later. So I I broke up with him in my apartment with two of my roommates in, in the other room to make sure that I was safe. Mm. And he didn't he didn't harm me, but he was very devastated about the the whole breakup. And I remember, you know, he was he was he was very weepy, very quiet. Yeah. And then I closed the door and all of a sudden I just heard him scream. And mm. then he barreled down the hallway. And then about 15 minutes later, I got a text that said, you know, I'm going to commit suicide un unless mm. you get back together with me. Right. And so I knew like, OK, I got to report this. So I, I was living with the community assistant who basically is kind of the manager of all the RAs or the resident sure. assistants who essentially are kind of like there to keep college students safe. So mm -hmm. I came up to her and I said, hey, this is what's going on. So she called a crisis team. They intervened. And I had no idea what happened that evening. But the next day I was flying back home and I get a text from him and it said, well, I wasn't actually going to kill myself. And I'm like, and you know, you and know so, that? Yeah. well, and it was like, so the whole tactic was, you know, trying right. to make me feel guilty sure. that, oh, if I did kill myself, it's your fault, you know, carrying sure. the guilt. But I had only dated him for like a month. Mm -hmm. And so I don't feel like there was enough sure. investment in the relationship for me where I felt any sort of guilt. I, I just felt like this is 100% a reflection on you has nothing to do with me. I sure. know that what you're doing is very manipulative. But I think the reason that I want to share this story is the whole idea that like the moment you put it out there that you're in the you know in the moment threatening suicide, you take it seriously. And so, you know, to say, "Oh, I wasn't actually going to do it." Right. You know, I I I feel like and I can't speak for his actual experience, but like you know, what are you going to do? Not respond? Right, right. So I think that like, why do I bring this up? I think it's just the whole idea that when you know somebody's suicidal, take action immediately. Whether mm -hmm. or not that actually comes to fruition, take it as if it would. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think communicating to that person who's defensive and is like, hey, I wasn't actually going to kill myself. It's like, well, I'm glad you got the help. Yeah. Even if, you know, you were and and if and if you really were going to use suicidal threats as a form of, 
emotional manipulation and shaming, then maybe you need some mental health support. Right, exactly. You know, so I I think another reason I want to bring that up is because I, I could see people with autism not knowing what to do, feeling guilty. And I think it's just about understanding that if somebody is threatening to kill themselves as a way to lock you into a relationship, it's toxic. And yeah. that's, and, and it's okay to, you know, help them seek support in the sense of like calling a crisis intervention or calling the police, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not, it, it's never something that you need to place burden on. It's not right. your fault that that person is suicidal. There are layers right. upon layers upon layers of why that person made that decision. Yeah. Um, all right. So as teachers, our protocol for supporting a student that is feeling suicidal applies regardless if that person has autism. So what can teachers do to support a student with autism that they notice is struggling with their mental health, especially if they have knowledge that the student is self-harming, had suicidal thoughts, or went to an inpatient clinic? Well, it's kind of as we talked about already, right? The f- number one thing is let them know that you support them and that they have a person checking on their mental health, right? They have somebody that they can go to to check on their mental health, whether that's um, their parent or a professional, right? Most likely a professional to help them and check in on them. Um, My other thought is to reduce the stress as much as possible, right? So that means with assignments and makeup work, if they're they're missing a lot of school, um, and at that point, their mental health is more important than school. Right. So you just offer that support. It's like, I'm here to support you. You know, when you're in class, you know, we can talk about what you can do to make this um, stuff up, but you need to take care of yourself first. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to add you? a, well, yeah. I want to, I want to ask you another question about that. Sure. Cause I think like my mindset is I'm not asking them to make great work if their mm-hmm. mental health is struggling. But I, I do care that like, even if you get a D, I just want you to pass. Right. But sometimes that doesn't happen. You know, sometimes a student's mental health is so significant that they they just fail. Yeah. Or yeah. they, they fail out, some yeah. classes because they, they only have the bandwidth to put their energy towards mm-hmm, one or mm-hmm. two classes. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts and mindset if a student fails your class because they are significantly dealing with mental health struggles? There's not a whole lot I can do at that point. I mean, if they're, if they're failing my class, that means they're not in my class, Mm -hmm. right? So they've missed a ton of work. They've missed a ton of school and there's really not a whole lot I can do except for, you know, offer some advice about summer school or or try to make up these credits. Uh, Typically when students, fail my class, it's a core class that they have to have to pass. Um, it all depends on where they are, too. I mean, are they able to come back to school? Um, or do they need to take a semester off? You know, may, is that the best decision for them? Of course, I'm not in the process of making that decision for them. Um, I'm just here to offer them supports when they do come back. Yeah, yeah. So in our episode about autism and depression, so I shared a story about a student who you know, was basically borderline failing my class because she was struggling with depression and she was not really enjoying the expectations of an advanced art class. And so I think that 
it, when it comes to students who fail and their thinking is, well, do I retake the class? Or let's say in my case, I have a student who's very passionate about art, wants to take honors, wants to take AP. I think that you're right. You know, when a, when a student fails, it's not really in the teacher's control to do anything that really involves counselors. It involves caseworkers if the student has an IP, and it also involves administrators. But I do think if the student has a chance of taking you again, let's say for an advanced elective, I think that it's important to have a safe, supportive conversation about, is this a good fit for you right now? And I think when it comes to art, my belief is if at this time in your life, when you're struggling with your mental health, if, if taking an advanced art class is not the right fit for you, there are plenty of online self-paced resources. Sure, sure. You know, your validity as an artist or your talent as an artist doesn't have to be dependent on whatever advanced art class you take at the high school or college level. And, and I think it's about, you know, being kind to yourself. Like I know when I was struggling with my mental health, I had to be very mindful of what my, what I was actually realistically capable of handling versus like the overachiever part of me is like, well, I'm going to do this. What I'm going to do that. And so I do think like when a student struggles with their mental health, that, that is the reality check that you need to be able to have those those conversations of, okay, maybe five AP classes is not the right fit right. for you, or, Correct. or maybe uh, taking a bunch of intro level art classes is better than focusing on advanced art classes. You know, something that right. that is stimulating but isn't going to be like an extreme challenge. Correct. Yeah. You know, so I do think like teachers can play a role in that, and ultimately, I think that the last thing a student wants is is they fear their teacher is going to be upset at them and shame right. them. Right. So I think that if there's ever any moment of interacting with the student where you just say, you know, it's a bummer you failed, but I get it and I support you along the way. And if you're interested in taking another class in the future, let me know. And I'm, I'm happy to be there for you. Absolutely. Okay. So what are your th uh, thoughts about supporting a student with autism if they are struggling with mental health? So some students are ashamed of their autism and want to be treated like their peers and their parents may feel the same way. A student might not be ready to talk about autism and mental health, even if they know that a teacher has autism like myself. Mm -hmm. um, then there are students who may feel that you, the teacher with autism, are the only person they can talk to and feel understood by. So talking to an adult that gets the autistic experience may be a saving grace for them. Mm. I was open about my autism to every student that I knew was neurodiverse. So not just students with autism. Uh, I also told my students with ADHD and dyslexia. I told them so that they knew I was a resource and some relied on me and others didn't. Yeah. Create a safe, validating space. Do not ask personal questions about mental health. Know your boundaries about your knowledge of mental health and your comfort talking about it, mm -hmm. especially as I talked about earlier, the, the conflict of interest of maybe sharing too much information about your mental health. Right. You know, so your role as a teacher is, you know, 
How can I be an ally to, to help you with your academic success and send you to the right mental health resources? You're not your student's therapist. And sometimes, you know, students will be more open with their teacher than they would with a school therapist, but that's still not, not your role. Um, but students might get confused about that. So you just want to be able to provide that support, especially students with autism. You want to protect the student from oversharing about their mental health so that they can set better boundaries with other people around them. Be gentle with their emotional overwhelm or sensory overwhelm. Allow space for those autistic behaviors to show, like not making eye contact. Right. And and my big thing, I mean, not necessarily with suicidal ideation, but like I'm very particular about if I know that I have a student in mental health distress or physical health distress, I need to make sure that they get to where they need to go. Yeah. And so I get really upset if I say go to the counseling office and the student chooses to, you know, walk around the school or whatever. And, and I get it. Like sometimes students know what they need better than teachers do. But the key is when there is any sort of physical or mental health distress, you want to make sure that that child is not alone. We got to know where they are. Yeah. But teenagers want to be alone. <laughs> and so yeah. that's what's really tough. So so what I've done is I'll say, I'm going to send you to the counseling office. And then I also reach out to that counselor and say, yep, hey, I just want to make I want to follow through that that student made it. And if they didn't, we're going to we're going to have a search party. Because the worst thing that you want is that student goes off campus and something bad happens and then I'm liable. Um, And I so actually um, I had a student who asked to go to the bathroom, genuinely just needed to go to the bathroom. And for some reason, while in the bathroom, had a panic attack Mm -hmm. and the student was gone for like 40 minutes. Yeah. And I got concerned. And I, you know, so I'm calling the, uh, I'm calling the security guards, I'm calling counselors. And then it was like about maybe 10 minutes before uh, class ended, I got a pretty lengthy email that said, you know, Hey, I just want to let you know, I had a panic attack. I didn't feel comfortable going back. And unfortunately, I had to report the student because that was the protocol from the administrator. It was like, Right. You know, the student ditched class. And I felt really bad about doing it because I knew exactly why the student did what they did. So the next time the student came to class, I said, let's have a plan that if that happens again, how are you going to communicate to me immediately? And right. I explained to the student, like, there is a huge safety concern if I have no idea where you are and nobody else in the school has eyes on you, especially if you're having a panic attack. Exactly. And so... I said, if it happens again, take your phone with you so you can email me and email me immediately, mm-hmm. even if it's something short like panic attack. Right. So then that way I know who to reach out to. Um, and, and I think what's so hard about it is is because students don't want adults meddling in their mental health. Right. And yet that is exactly what they need sometimes. So that's why it's so important that some adult knows where they are, what's going on. And I might not be the adult that helps them, but maybe there's a security guard that connects with them, or maybe Mm -hmm. there's a counselor or a wandering teacher, you know? So I think it's really important, especially for students with autism to know 
that there's always somebody there and and that they need to let an adult know that they're struggling. Right. Even if it's like, okay, I'm struggling, but I need my space. That's fine, but somebody but, needs to have your eye on you. Right, you need to be in counseling for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and if a security guard sees them, they'll escort them to counseling. Yep. Um, so anyway, be gentle with their emotional overwhelm or sensory overwhelm. Allow space for those autistic behaviors to show, as I said before. Allow students to have lunch with you on occasion so that they don't feel alone, obviously within limits so you don't burn yourself out. Right. I will say when I was struggling with social anxiety in high school, and I've talked about this in previous podcast episodes, my junior and senior year of high school, I really worked on my social skills and my social life got a lot better. But once a week, I had lunch with my caseworker and it was awesome. Not only because my caseworker was a fantastic person that I I love dearly, that I'm tremendously grateful for, but just to be able to have an adult that I could relate to. And honestly, I think the caseworker actually liked having lunch with me. And so because of the impact that had on me as a student, I really thought about maybe that's something I want to do for my students. The problem was... I was getting constantly socially overstimulated and teachers need lunch breaks to just take yes. a break from kids. Yes, and so do. if you're using your lunches and you're constantly talking to kids or those kids, you know, if you have an autistic kid that's like talking about their special interest over and yes. over, yes. and then they're talking about their mental health, yes. you're not getting a break. So, so as painful as it was for me to feel like, oh, I can't be that mentor Mm -hmm. I realized I needed time to, alone so that right. I could get through my own day. Exactly. And then lastly, you know, coach them on social, emotional and sensory coping strategies that will make them more resilient when dealing with crisis. It is not our role as teachers to be therapists, but mm -hmm. I mean, as somebody who has had a tremendous amount of coping skills if the student isn't going to respond to the school counselor teaching them that skills, but they will respond to a trusted teacher, why not show them a certain mindfulness skill that could help them with self-regulation? Yeah. So even though you're not a mental health professional yet, you're on your journey. Do you have advice for therapists with autistic clients dealing with suicidal ideation as somebody that sought help from therapists? Yes. Every therapist should be aware of their limits when it comes to supporting a client's mental health. Some therapists are not comfortable addressing a suicide crisis, even though they are mandatory reporters. In my experience, most of the crisis workers I've met worked very well with autistic people. My therapist created a safety plan in and out of the therapy session. This, is not, this not only included suicidal ideation, but also meltdowns and self-harming. If therapists don't feel equipped to support a person with autism, then don't take them on. If you are, make time to do research on autism. Um, I also, my therapist is currently in like a Facebook group that's led by a therapist with autism. And the whole point of the group is, is a bunch of neurodiverse therapists providing feedback to neurotypical counselors on okay. how to support neurodiverse clients. So that's she awesome. has, my therapist has been going to this autistic therapist on how to support me. Nice. And so she's gotten a lot of value out of that. 
don't buy the rhetoric that a person needs to be cured of autism or assess if the person with autism is misdiagnosed. I remember, uh, so before I went to the inpatient clinic, I went to a hospital, which I don't recommend. I spent $2,000 on a medical bill for somebody to say, uh, we're not in a position to help you because we are not mental right. health experts. Do not and, go to a hospital or and an emergency here's your check. room. Here's your bill. Yeah. Right. Just go to just either go to a walk-in crisis clinic or go to an inpatient clinic. I felt like I could have saved myself time and money if I didn't go to the hospital. But when I was mm -hmm. there, I had a therapist while I'm in distress say, I don't think your autism diagnosis is correct. I do think you have an anxiety disorder, but you know, you're so high functioning and you're so social and you're so articulate. I just think right. you're, you know, and I'm like, that's, that's not person, the yeah. time for, nor is exactly. it the right person to really determine. And I can't tell you how many people in my life have said, well, I think maybe you, you have a misdiagnosis, which that created a lot of existential Sure. you know, crisis of like, oh, well, is it accurate? And all the mm -hmm. adversity that I went through, was it, was it actually true? So I'm at a point where I'm like, I know I'm autistic. Mm -hmm. And I just think people who do not have expertise on autism should not ever tell a person with autism, especially when they're in crisis, yeah. that their autism diagnosis was not correct. Yeah. If you are interested in supporting individuals with autism, do research on the history of how autism was supported in the mental health field. Develop equitable and inclusive therapeutic practices for kids and adults with autism, since there aren't a lot of resources. And finally, if you are autistic seeking support from a new age healer, so that would be like Reiki, past life hypnosis, regressionists, um, mm -hmm. the, you know, all those kind of people, make sure they have some academic training in mental health or they seek out support from a new age healer in addition to a professional therapist. In my experience, new age healers are very emotional mm -hmm. and they have a hard time separating ego from their opinions of what the client should do. And I think that like anybody who has academic training of any sort, in addition to being a new age healer, there's a little more critical thinking that's involved and a little yeah. more that ability to think objectively and mm -hmm. to yes. kind of be more of a facilitator. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying new age healers aren't capable of that. It's just in my 20s, I went to a ton of new age healers and I felt like that was a common theme that I had issues with is just like inserting opinions and uh, I don't know, just not letting the client feel valid in their own feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So let's move into the uh, resources part of this. So seeking out support for suicide can look different for every person, right? For the purpose of this episode, we recommend a few things. Um, so, so these are some few general suggestions for anyone struggling with suicidal thoughts, as well as some autism-friendly resources in relation to suicide. Okay, number one, seek help from either a walk-in crisis center or suicide hotline. Again, that number is 988. Um, consider admitting yourself to an inpatient mental health clinic. 
Seek out therapists and psychiatrists with a background in autism. Attend mental health support groups for people with autism. Now, in her article, Six Reasons Autistic People Are at Greater Risk of Suicide, Dr. Claire Jack offers three suggestions for people with autism to lower their risk of suicidal ideation. Number one, seek out a diagnosis if you don't already have one. This will help you understand how your mental health struggles are related to the symptoms of autism. Number two, talk to somebody, whether it's a family member, men, member a mental health professional, or a friend. Sharing your feelings with somebody is a good step towards getting help. And three, find a self-care routine that reduces the likelihood of entering into a crisis state, as well as giving yourself compassion. She also says that parents, friends, colleagues, family members, or healthcare professionals should consider these factors when supporting a person with autism. Number one, masking is a significant root cause to suicidal ideation. Get as much education on autism masking as possible. Also, just because a person with autism presents as high functioning doesn't mean that they are less likely to experience suicidal thoughts. So here's an interesting statistic out of the University of Iowa. In 2023, they had a study that determined that autistic people with an, a high IQ of 120 or higher were actually six times more likely to have thoughts of suicide than those with an average IQ. And Nicole, I wonder what you think of that. Do you have any thoughts about that particular oh, No, that's such a loaded thing, but I do think it makes sense. I, I think that autistic people have experienced a lot of marginalization and are very aware of the injustice of that. And okay. they're very aware of, I mean, I think that autistic people are incredibly intelligent to the point that, and it's kind of like, if I, if I take, for example, ableism, if you understand how ableism works to a very detailed degree, but you don't have an understanding of how you can beat it or how to protect yourself and you feel powerless, that's where the IQ part of it, to me, feels, feels very strong. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just, it's the self-awareness of hardship. Mm. might it may be that um and i also think that like you know people that are you know quote unquote high functioning or have a really high iq they're probably engaging more actively in the world uh with kind of higher stakes social responsibilities such as you know manager at a corporate job or stuff like yeah, yeah. that and so I think that sometimes like the great burden of responsibility mm, can yes, be part of it. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I also think that the awareness around abuse, like mm -hmm. if, if the person with autism came from a very dysfunctional family or was a victim of abuse, that can be part of it. Um, I think really what it contributes to is, is the extreme intelligence of, how unfair the world is and how disadvantaged we are as autistic people that we can't beat it or yeah. the way that we beat it comes from masking, which creates a huge burden. So I think that there's like, there's a lot of mental processing of how we survive. And also mm -hmm. we just live in our heads in general. And I think right. that, yeah. uh, that yeah. can play a really big role. Yeah. 
All right. To move on, uh, the signs of suicide present differently in people with autism compared to neurotypical people. And then the final thing that she asked people to consider is when talking about suicide, make sure the person with autism feels heard and feels safe enough to express their feelings. Their processing speed when communicating about suicidal ideation might be slower than neurotypical people feel that feel suicidal. So do not try to assure that the person is okay and everything's going to work out and they don't have anything to worry about. Just take in what they say seriously and support them to get help. In our show notes, we're going to link a PDF document called Autism and Warning Signs of Suicide, Considerations for the Autism Community by Lisa Morgan and Brenda Maddox. There aren't books that specifically address autism and suicide, but here are a list of books that can support a person with autism to understand mental health factors that could build up to feelings of suicide. These books also touch base briefly on autism and suicide. Autism Spectrum Disorder and Depression by Nick Dubin, Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety by Nick Dubin, The Guide to Good Mental Health on the Autism Spectrum by Jeanette Perkis, Dr. Emma Goodall, and Dr. Jane Nugent, Trauma, Stigma, and Autism, Developing Resilience and Loosening the Grip of Shame by Gordon Gates, and The Healing Otherness Handbook by Dr. Stacey Reicherzer. If you are an autistic person that has recently experienced the loss of a person that had committed suicide, read the book, Living Through Suicide Loss with an Autism Spectrum Disorder by Lisa Morgan. All right. We've come to the end of this episode. So to summarize this episode, we presented a few reasons why people with autism would consider suicide and some general resources that can either address suicidal ideation or can decrease the risks. Again, we are not mental health experts. All suggestions for responding to suicide were based on internet research and personal testimony. What may work for one person with autism may not be supportive to another. We want to stress that if you're feeling suicidal, please reach out to a walk-in crisis clinic or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988 or 1-800-273-8255. So I want to take a second to transition. Um, so this was a really heavy topic, but yes, it was. on a lighter note, this is our last episode of our first season. Wow. And we've, we've come a long way, haven't we? Yeah, I just I I just want to say that I've had so many feelings about these topics bottled up for my entire life and to have a platform to be able to just speak so transparently to people who really can choose to access this information rather than, you know, hey, let's set up a meeting, let's set up a workshop. Right. It just feels really empowering and I just want to express gratitude to collaborate with another autism expert who has oh, a very you, yeah. different perspective. So do you have any thoughts or reactions about the wrapping up we, our first season? We are going to have another podcast thing on the, the things that we learned for, um, about the first season. So a lot of what I'm going to say is going to go on to that show, but to, to suffice it to say, um, I'm, I'm just impressed about where we have gone from December to now. Right. In, in terms of that journey of, hey, I have this idea. And then you're like, oh, I've I've had that idea for years and I have, you know, ideas for 10 episodes right now. Let's do this thing. And so, you know, the learning curve and all of the things. And, and ultimately, you know, I wouldn't be doing that or doing this unless, A, I felt that it would add value in the community. 
and B, that I could do that with somebody like you who's passionate about your experiences and willing to, to share those experiences like you did today and with the idea of that we're here to help people, right? Through understanding that the name of our podcast, through understanding autism, we're, we're getting the community aware of, of what the struggles are. We're a resource for people on the spectrum. We're a resource for parents. We're resources for caregivers, right? And it's all, it's all coming from a good place. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just so grateful that that mentoring relationship we had about, what, four years ago? Yeah. I'm just so glad it, it gets to continue. And, and I feel like we've gotten so much closer Absolutely. having done this podcast than we were when we worked together. And to be able to stay in touch like this is, is awesome. So I look forward to season two. We are Absolutely. certainly not stopping at season one. Um, no. Do you want to give a quick teaser of what the theme of season two will be? I don't know that we've decided what the theme of the season two would be. We had, we talked a lot about topics and things that might be of interest for people, especially transition from school to work. That was a big topic. Um, but we have a, a whole lot of thoughts. What about yeah, you? I think that um, based on what we've talked about outside of this podcast, the general theme is probably going to be between adult independence, autism and adult independence, mm -hmm. as well as neurodiversity in the workplace. Because that feels like the yeah. next big urgent concern. Plus, we went to a neurodiversity in the workplace conference, and we've got a, a, of, a yeah. few interviews that we've done that are going to, yes. you know, add value to things that we've shared. Now, so. that that's a teaser that we can throw out right now. We do have interviews lined up for season two um, to help with that. So we're very excited to share those interviews. And of course, more artwork, more poetry, <laughs> more <laughs> advocacy. And Absolutely. we just want to say really quick to our viewers, thank you for yes, downloads. Thank you so much. Um, we're, we're just so grateful and we look forward to growing this podcast so that we can grow our subscriber base and our audience and Absolutely. just make more of a difference and impact. So for now, for our, for our little channel, having that much uh, investment in our, in our information, we thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. To close, follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. And I got to say, I have made more artwork in one year because of this podcast than I ever had in my life, except art school. So yay for being productive, right? There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. Right. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. Is it is it next week though? It could be it could be next season, but you know, we'll see. We'll see what Yeah, happens. well, yeah, next season. I guess it <laughs> for sure next year. <laughs> exactly. All right. And I'm Nicole Cavillas. Thank you so much for tuning in and yeah, we'll we'll see you soon.